would, and you can, take your Bibles and stand with me and turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 14 through 22 will be our text this morning. Mark chapter 2, 14 through 22. Follow along as we read God's word together. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, that's Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and, the wor and, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Father, it's good for us to be under your Word today. We thank you that you have put it within all of our hearts. You have, by your Spirit, brought us into one accord this morning to sit under the teaching of your Word, to stand in honor and worship you in song, to obey you as we serve you in our different roles that make up this many members of one body. We give you the credit for this, Lord. We and of ourselves would not be here, Lord, if you would not have changed our hearts and our minds, we would drift away into the pleasures of the world. And yet, Lord, you have captured us. And we routinely, Lord, day in and day out, lay our lives down for you. You're worth it to us, Lord. So we, we ask that you would remind our souls today of the great passion of the Lord Jesus Christ to gather people to his name to rejoice with them, to celebrate over the gospel, to, to be reminded that there's nothing greater than a man or woman, a boy, a girl, whose sins are forgiven. And so, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us today as we remind ourselves of this truth through your sufficient word. Lord, we would be remiss if we did not ask for prayers and continual care and comfort for the Davis family, Lord. We thank you for them. We, many of us have been very encouraged by their faith as their theology, when they were squeezed, oozed out of them. What they believe has taken them through a tough trial. But Lord, we do remember them now as the family and crowds thin out and people return to life. 
And they are alone now, Lord, left with sorrow and grief, Lord, at times. We pray, Lord, that you, the great God of comfort, would comfort them. And Lord, as we are reminded that because Jesus was afflicted and drew us to ourselves, we can understand that affliction. And we who have been afflicted now can comfort. So we, we do that as well. Thank you for that reminder yesterday as well. Lord, we also pray for our camp children. Lord, these young people who have uh, taken a week away from their normal life to go uh, to camp, to the mountains, to spend time with one another, but particularly around your word. So, Lord, we ask that you would capture their hearts, Lord. Save the unsaved. Draw them to you. This may be the week that you add to your numbers of who will belong to the kingdom of God. We pray that that will happen. For those that have made professions of faith, we pray that they would have a renewed sense of walking with you, Lord. And the urgency to live with you, Lord. Father, we would pray that for this room here as well. If there are lost, Lord, you would collect them. And those who know you, may we be encouraged to walk with you in a way that brings great joy and more particularly great glory to you. The Lord, be with us now as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Entitled the sermon, The, In, uh, the Inside Ministry of Jesus. <laughs> I, I, as I studied this passage all week, I began to realize this is really a good look at the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. Years ago, when I began to pursue this blonde gal that I'm married to over here, um, uh, it didn't take me long to realize that her family was in baseball. In fact, my opening line to this beautiful blonde woman was, your dad's a Bill Plummer? What a great line. Um, she went out with me anyway. Uh, when, I, when I got around her, I was always a baseball fan. I, I you know, grew up playing, played high school and college baseball, and, and was very much into the game. But little did I know when I married into that family what baseball life was really like. And I think the average fan doesn't understand the details and all that goes on to baseball life and how crazy their life is. Dinner's at 1 o'clock in the morning because that's when you finally got back from the ballpark and you sleep till 10 and then you get up and you do it all over again. And it's just a crazy life. And uh, of course, we know that life a little more now than we have ever had. Um, but it was interesting just to see the inside life, to see how management and baseball thought and uh, how they looked at things so much different than the average fan. When I studied this text, I began to realize this is how Jesus worked. He's constantly walking around, calling people to himself. They're dropping whatever they're doing, and they're following him. He had an amazing supernatural ability, because he's God, to pull people away from whatever they were engaged in to follow him. And then there's this constant battle he had with a religious elite. Just day in and day out, they plagued him. They hated him. They rejected him. They did not want to lose their authority to him. And day in and day out, they followed him. He constantly was offering forgiveness of sins to people, healing people, rejoicing with those who repented. We'll see that in this text. And he was proving that he was the Messiah, the one that all of the Old Testament was looking for. It was Jesus. And so this small text right here is kind of a slice, the inside of Jesus' ministry we'll see today. Look with me um, at verse 14 as we begin to look at our first thought today. Number one, Jesus calls the elect from every walk of life. Jesus calls the elect, those that are 
been set apart for salvation. He calls him from every walk of life. Notice in verse 14, as he, that's Jesus, passed by, he finds Levi. Levi, a son of a Jew, a man who was a tax collector. I want you to realize, and you probably have if you've read the Gospels much, most of Jesus' ministry took place outside. Do you realize that? Most of his ministry seems to be outside. I kind of like that, you know. I like being outside. And, and, And you think about it, just in the last text, he's healing the paralytic, and we realize they all can't fit in that house. That didn't work, right? Guys are tearing roofs apart trying to get this guy down to him. So most of his ministry is outside, and after healing and, and more importantly, forgiving the parallel of his sins, this whole crowd in the Lord Jesus Christ move their way down to the seashore, as we see in verse 13. And there, he does what he said he came to do, teach and preach. That's what he came to do, share the gospel with them. And I do think that it's, that it's interesting how often we find him by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we're really blessed here in uh, not having grown up next to the ocean. Our, you know, our last three years here have been so fun just going to the ocean. It's such a great reminder of the power of God, uh, the faithfulness of Him as you watch wave after wave rolls through. So many things that tie into that as we think about the Lord Jesus down on the shores. And so He had an outdoor ministry in a lot of ways. But remember that Jesus' primary ministry was preaching, and that's what He was to do. So he was always gathering people, always gathering people to put them under the word of God. My mentor many years ago, even before I started dating Gina, one of the things he taught me in, in ministry was gather people. Get them together in any way you can and share God's word with them. That's our goal. Get them together. Gather them because that's what Jesus did. He was constantly doing those things. And so here he's drawn this great crowd to come under the truth that he was going to propose. Uh, proclaim that was God's word. Now, notice in verse 14 that everything he does is intentional. It, it seems somewhat that he's passing by, but we know too much of our theology of the Bible that Jesus doesn't happen to just be passing by in the sense like, oh, hey, there's Matthew. Maybe I'll take him with me. These are divine appointments that God has. It's a divine appointment to meet Matthew. It's a divine appointment to pick somebody that the rest of the world would not have chosen. (laughs) Certainly. And this is true of every believer. Now, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to do something, just an exercise here that would encourage you. We know this text. We love this text. But I want to to do it in a way that maybe would uh, help bring this point uh, home. How he calls us to himself. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Look with me at this text. Now, we're thinking about Matthew here. Jesus has a divine appointment with him, so I'll use his name. But where I use Matthew's name, I want you to insert your name if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has saved you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose Matthew in him before the foundations of the world, that Matthew would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined Matthew to the adoption as a son through Jesus Christ to himself, according, now look at this, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace. Isn't that amazing? That's how God saves us. And here, as he's 
now left dealing with his paralytic, saving him, forgiving his sins, and healing him as well, he moves intentionally to claim a soul that he knew before the foundations of the world, all to the kind, intentional, divine purpose of his will. Isn't that great? Now, now go back and read that to this afternoon or sometime this week and put your name in there. God intended to meet with you. God's intention, his kind intentions. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that don't you know that it's out of the kindness of God that he leads us to repentance? So often those who teach a reformed theology or doctrines of grace to teach the sovereignty of God, we get blasted that, well, God's just this mean guy, has some and, you know, does all this. No, it's a kind intention of his will. He saved us out of his kindness. You can't take away from him that he's God and he knows who's are his. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And so when we look at this passage, we begin to realize that he has this divine intention to meet Matthew and call him out of the world. Another verse that I love so dearly is Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It's Acts chapter 13, the Gentiles are realizing that the gospel has now come to them. Spirit of God has fallen on them. Gentiles are getting saved. And the Bible says this verse, it says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Did you catch that? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So this is what God does. He leaves no stone unturned. He is perfect in all of his ways. And so here as we find and we come up to this scene with, with Levi here, with Matthew, we find Jesus fulfilling the will of God. Now, it isn't hard to think about this when you think about many of Jesus' converts. This was a scandalous one. This is not one that probably went over well. This sent a shockwave through the crowd that's following him. He's already called four disciples, and they're you know, these fishermen that, you know, well, you know, they're blue-collar guys, if that. And now he stops and calls a tax collector. And no, no religious leader with any clout at all would ever invite a tax collector to be part of their circle. You just wouldn't do that. But Jesus loves, look about Jesus loves to shatter stereotypes. Just, he just loves to do that. And, and it's not that he just all of a sudden says, hey, I'm going to do this. This is written down before the foundations of the world. He knows man's hearts. He knows that people are going to go, uh, I can't believe he just did that. He chose a tax collector. Now, let's get to know Levi just a little bit here. Uh, he's better known as Matthew. That would have been his Greek name. And here his name in the scriptures is called Levi, and his father's name was Alphaeus. So um, clearly he has a Jewish heritage here. Now also remember that Capernaum was the largest city by the Sea of Galilee. So there's major trade routes and highways going back and forth that has economic success. And Matthew... <laughs> Levi here is part of a very lucrative, elaborate system to gain wealth. And he is called a tax collector. Now, what he had in wealth, he lacked in respect. This was not something that was appreciated greatly. In fact, all tax collectors were despised by Jews, but Jewish tax collectors working for the Roman government, there was no more pond scum than that. Right? They did not care for these guys at all. The Jews were captives to Rome. Jews were required to pay tax. 
And they didn't care for that. Now, taxi became a franchise business. <laughs> You've heard of Amway? <laughs> this is the ultimate pyramid system. Somebody gets in on the ground floor, and you're making more money. And so this was the way they worked. Now, Jesus knew about this. John the Baptist knew about this. In, in John chapter 3, you remember this text? Um, uh, all, everybody's coming out. The Bible says that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea are coming out, are being baptized in a baptism of repentance to John. We actually, in chapter 3, I think around verse 12 or 13, we start to hear of some of the confessions that are going on. One of them is our tax collectors. They come out. And John says, you are only to collect what is due. He goes on to tell uh, soldiers not to abuse the people and so forth. But he brings that out in the text. And he said, they said, teachers, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than what is due. So this has been a problem. Now, clearly this is profitable business. This is a profitable business. And they knew how to squeeze people, right? Uh, and, and everything that comes with uh, illegal taxation and illegal extracting money with people. So you have your thugs and your low life. That would have all been a part of this. And many of them would have been at the party that we're going to see in a few minutes. You have a financial pyramid set up. So a guy who gets in on the ground floor, he, he's, his guys are working underneath them. He gets a portion of that, and they get a portion of the guys that they recruit below them, and so forth. It's a multi-market level, multi level of system, right? Be on top, and you get more. And this is how they work. Now listen to some of the tax. The Bible calls a pull tax, and basically what it is called really is a head tax. So if you have a head, you are taxed. Well, we use the word pull, I don't know why, um, in the English, but it's a head tax. So if you're alive, you got taxed. So they, they had that going against them. Beyond that, that income tax, land tax, transportation tax, road tax, bridge tax, market tax, and the list goes on, and it sounds familiar today. <laughs> First thing we bought when we moved to Florida was a sun pass, because you got to go down those toll roads, right? And so we begin to understand the taxation here but tax every tax was added on to it wasn't just that these taxes were there to cross this road or this bridge or to sell in the marketplace there was an add-on here and in order to feed this elaborate financial system they added on more and more each time now beyond just that <laughs> these guys were called traitors so matthew by his own people would be looked at as a traitor a turncoat and they would not have cared for this man at much. Now, it doesn't seem that Matthew's probably on the top of the financial pyramid here because he's sitting in a tax booth. He's working for somebody. He's, he's making money, and he gets a portion of that, but he gives it to somebody above him, right, as the pyramid system goes. And he's probably stationed at one of these intersections of trade routes when Jesus came by. But nonetheless, he is hated for this robbery lifestyle, this dishonest, extortionist lifestyle. And think about this for just one moment. No one would have thought Matthew, a tax collector, to be a candidate for a disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, honestly, right? If you think about, oh, if we had to pick out of the room who was going to be with Jesus. You know, we're just like Israel. We're going with the tall guy, you know. Short presidents don't make it, you know that. Uh, you know, Dukakis never had a chance. Um, he, he was in that tank with that little help, and he was done. Um, so we look on the outside, right? But God looks upon the heart, and he knew what he was going to do. So, 
So when we think about this, he's not really a candidate for a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it's possible that Matthew had charged maybe even Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, these fishing guys, with a fishing tax. Because you couldn't move from the Sea of Galilee back into the city of Capernaum without getting taxed on some kind of road tax or something. So now, not only do you have disciples now coming from these uh, different ways of life, but ones that possibly do not care for each other. Can you imagine Peter going, no. <laughs> oh, my family hates that guy. You can, this, is, this is just possible. This is me thinking out loud of really what these men were like. But with all that said, with all the problems, Jesus is unconcerned with social stigmas. He doesn't care. He's not bound to what people think in any way. And it's amazing that Jesus walks up to this toll booth and commands, it's in an imperative here, Matthew, follow me. And without hesitation at all, look at the text, without hesitation, Matthew's will is overcome by Christ and he leaves everything to follow the Savior. Wow. Can you imagine the crowd? All these religious people, all the who's and who's not of Capernaum. They're all there. And he takes the scandalous one. He takes the one we hate. All seeking Jesus for wrong reasons. And doubtlessly Matthew knew about Jesus. And, and, and most likely, probably, he had, had profited from Jesus picking Capernaum as his home operating base. Because people kept coming and going through these tolls. And so probably he knew about Jesus. He had probably heard that something he had done. But all he was glad about was, I'm getting more money from all these people who are coming back and forth. And there's no evidence up to this point that Matthew cared about the things of the Lord. It was just another day. It was just another dollar for Matthew. But Jesus, this is what we love about him. He invades his life. He goes right to his heart. And this is only what Jesus can do. He can capture your heart. He can flood his glory into your heart. And you see him totally different than you did the day before when he saves you. Matthew was captured by him. And once Matthew saw that, his transformation was immediate. And he begins to follow the Lord Jesus, even to the point of a celebration books out. Look at verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, that his is tied back to Levi, Matthew. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Now, we don't have a a quite understanding of the timeline. Um, Mark is famous for using the word immediately, but we don't have this in this text. So it seems as though many began to believe Matthew's testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verse 15, Matthew opens his home, and he opens his home to the only people he really knows. Guess who? Tax collectors and sinners. Because you could not be a friend with a man like Matthew, because then you would be associated with that sin. 
So guess what he opens his home to, to rejoice in his forgiveness of sins with? Tax collectors and sinners. And here, this seems that it is a sizable party, probably generally wealthy people. And many, the Bible says, many tax collectors and sinners were dining, notice this, with Jesus. See, Matthew wanted his people to meet his Savior. I think that's a mark of a saved person. You don't have a lamp and hide it under a bushel. You put it on a stand, don't you? If you know Jesus is your Savior and you're hiding him, hmm, maybe you don't know the Jesus. See, Matthew wants everyone to know his Savior. And like the paralytic, his sins have been forgiven. He'd been granted forgiveness and he's received this and he wants his family and friends to experience what he did. So Jesus and his disciples, now think about this, are thrust into a crowd of extortionists, thugs, criminals, probably prostitutes, because that whole thing goes together, right? Tax collectors and a multi-marketing pyramid of leaders. <laughs> and there's Jesus in the middle of them. Of all people, right in the middle of what the Jews would call the most worldly people on the planet. And here our Savior is, relaxing, reclining at the table, the text says. This suggests that Jesus was with these people for extended time. And his disciples are witnessing this display of evangelism. <laughs> this is interesting, isn't it? And the perfect, non-compromising Savior is making his glory known to the outcast of society. He's in the middle of them. He's reclining at the table with the worst, the dregs of the society. And there he is. What a great reminder. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. If God gives you the opportunity to be in a situation, and some of you have this, maybe your businesses take you into uh, parties or uh, relationships where the world is, is, is strong, right? This is their life, money and prestige and all of those things. Don't go without Jesus. I, I tell people, like, well, Pastor, I got this party. I really don't think I should be there as a Christian. Well, wait a minute. Um, Jesus went to some parties, but he took the message of, of him. And so I reminded many businessmen, you should go to that party, don't compromise, have Jesus on your thoughts, and be a light in a dark world. You have to be careful of that, right? If, if your goal is not Jesus Christ, and you go into that situation, and your goal is not to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ or be a, a light in that dark world, the world will then evangelize you. You see that happen? Happens all the time. And so here's our Lord in the midst of the dregs, reclining. Now, before we leave this point, I, I want you to just think with a mark of the fruit of a true follower of Christ. The Luke account, chapter 5, verse 28, says Matthew, he, Matthew, here's what the Bible says about it. He left everything behind and got up and followed him. The Luke account reminds us that this isn't just some, well, I'll just go with him and see how things work out, because we know Matthew never left Jesus. In fact, church history tells us that Matthew died a terrible death, a martyr's death, for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writers write that this, not, this isn't just an instance. This is him leaving everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a mark 
of a true believer. This is a mark of a faithful, true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew is, is the very kind of people that Jesus came to save. Not just the low life end of things. He came to save people who need a Savior. And in that moment, God flooded the knowledge that Matthew needed a Savior. And in a moment's notice, his eyes were opened, the, the, the veil was lifted, his dark heart, his hard heart of stone was turned to flesh, and he believed in Christ and followed him. And his life was changed forever. And so Luke records this. He left everything. His rapid response now think about this, his rapid response to the supernatural work of regeneration that took place in his heart marks the fruit of a true believer. So this man who had sold his soul for the gain and love of wealth now leaves everything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe Jesus was thinking of him in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this, chapter 6, verse 24 of Matthew. For no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God in wealth. Maybe Jesus pointed to Matthew in that. Matthew had to make a choice. I'm going to follow the Lord. i got to give all this up. And it seems that it happens instantaneously as the supernatural work of regeneration hits him. It's not even a second thought. He just leaves. See, see, Matthew received a new life. See, that's the mark of Christian. He's no longer an old creature. He's a new creature. Behold, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all things have become new. See, everything instantly became new to him. And that's what's so fun about being around new believers and discipling new believers is everything becomes new. That old stuff does not appeal to them anymore. They desire the things of Christ. They desire that new life that comes. And it's one of the things we have to think about, brothers and sisters, as we disciple people, because we see people that say, well, yeah, man, maybe I better get that Jesus in the old back pocket here. But they leave nothing. It's just add Jesus to this system I have to make myself wealthy or whatever, make myself known or, or a life that's just dominated by self. I'll add Jesus to that. It's just another selfish thought. But not Matthew. <laughs> not Matthew. He leaves it all. Later in Mark chapter 10, Jesus will tell us of about another young, rich ruler. And he will come to Jesus and say, I, I, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, have you kept the commandments? He goes, I've done them all for my youth. And what does he say? Leave it all and follow me. Couldn't do it. Matthew and the study of the rich young ruler are a side-by-side -side comparison that you should look at. They'll show you a stark difference between two people who have the same encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and one leaves everything to follow him, and the other says, the Bible says he went away distraught because he had much wealth. How can I add Jesus to what I want to do? Man, we've wrestled with that, haven't we? Or does he want all of me? Does he want everything? You know, he may not take everything from you, but have you offered it? 
Most of the time, he lets us have our homes, our wealth, our jobs, our relationships. He's a very kind and gracious God. He lets us live on this earth. He puts us in places of prominence and, and lets us serve. And we eat dinners out and we enjoy wealth and we have all kinds of things. Most of the time, he does that. But have you offered him everything? It's something we must wrestle with as Christians. Does, is that what he wants from us? Paul Paul wrestled with this truth. Following Christ was costly. And you know that this new life is being willing. He may not ask, but he would give it, and Paul did that. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, you know these verses, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I can't imagine what that is. Family, prestige, power, all those things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. God asked it of Paul. Paul, the high powered religious leader, walks away from prestige, power, and wealth to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and actually calls that stuff rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we don't see the depth and the glory of Christ because we have one foot in the world. And look, I am a strong proponent of faith in Christ and living in, in this world, but that battle and the work of the Spirit in our life to not be of it. So this new life, Matthew has received, would motivated him to trade in the wealth of the very worldly life for the joy of daily walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately the joy of dying for Jesus. That's what God asked of Matthew. Later, Luke records this, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, you know this verse, he must deny himself and take up his cross. How often? Daily, thank you. Daily and follow me. And you go, man, Scott, that's a tough offer to give out there. In our society, right, wealth is everything. Every bit of hope is in that our economy will rebound from the difficulties of 2007 and forward, right? Everybody's talking about, well, it's going to come back. Are we going to gain that wealth we used to have? Are we going to get back our 401ks? Are we going to? I mean, all that talk is there. And Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to leave that and follow me tough sell but our gracious God first Peter chapter 1 says that he has riches untold an inheritance that can't pass away rust can't get to it it can't be defiled in fact in verse 5 he says God himself's garden it and so yet what you give up here in this life God himself will restore to you beyond infancy uh, times what you have here in this, in this eternal relationship you'll have with the Son. And so we don't offer them to just walk away from everything. God may want you wealthy and, and, and healthy, but He may want you poor and, and, and trusting Him for your health. I mean, he, he does all kinds of different things with different people, doesn't He? All for His glory. But Matthew is a lesson. He is a lesson that you and I must deal with. He left everything. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thought, the righteousness, excuse me, the self-righteous are blinded to their need of a Savior. Look at verse 
16 and following, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that they were that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Now, think about this. Jesus certainly knew their thoughts. We know in the last miraculous supernatural event of the healing of the paralytic, he could hear their thoughts. But he actually hears their complaints in this one in verse 17. In fact, Luke records this way, chapter 5, verse 32, if you have your finger, you're going back in that account. Verse 32, he, say, he says it this way. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, and then he adds this, to repentance. Right? So he didn't say, Matthew, follow me. The whole context teaches us. He said, Matthew, follow me and repent. Though he may not even use those words, Matthew repented of his sins and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, faith in Christ drives your repentance. And so God granted Matthew faith. That led to him to repent. That led to him following. That led to him leaving everything to go after the Savior. The Matthew account, chapter 9, verse 13, adds this to, as he speaks to these Pharisees, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Can you imagine that? I didn't come for you people who think you're well. You should go learn and figure out what I'm talking about. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 records this sovereign con conversation between God the Father and the Son. Verse 5, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, this is Jesus, and who's he talking to? God to be the Father. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. So Jesus is saying, you need to think about this and go and figure out what this means. I'm not interested in the things that you're interested in. I have a different plan. Well, back to our text, the master teacher is now using medical analogies in response to the Pharisees' self-righteous question. How could you argue with him? He's using medical terms. And by the way, he just healed a paralytic. <laughs> and how do you argue with him? He's forgiven sins. People are walking again. And, and, and don't think that he was just speaking about the sinners in that dining area because that's what he call, what it says. He's dining with these tax collectors and sinners. He's talking about the blindness, which I believe is a medical condition. <laughs> but he's talking about the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. You're just as blind. You think you're healthy. You think you have it figured out. You think you can see all things. But you are blind. Jesus in John 8, that great confrontation he has with the Pharisees says, I will go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins and where I'm going, you cannot come. Wow. Could you imagine hearing those words? I mean, they just wanted to get rid of him now. He spoke with such authority. He knew whose were his and he gathered those were his. So all people are dead in their sins, Right? And unable to attain new life in Christ outside of a supernatural work of God. We're reminded we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And, it's, and even though we're dead, it is Christ who makes us alive. And so he's using terms, medical terms, dead and blind. And he, he's the great physician because he can change that. Now, notice he says directly, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. 
Doubtless these hypocritical legalists missed the truth of this statement. Luke chapter 15, he addresses them again. He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's, that's Luke 15, 9. You should write that verse down. God is not interested in people who present themselves self-righteous before him. He said there's way more joy over one man, one person who says, God, I can't get to you without your grace. I'm a sinner that needs your salvation. That's where the joy lies in heaven. Over people who constantly try to produce themselves to be people that God must accept. And in other words, all those who hang around or hang on to their good works will never see the true righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Luke chapter 18? I don't have time to turn there, but this Pharisee religious ruler's up front praying, and of course he's got his hands up, doubtlessly, and he's drawing attention, and he's talking about all he gives and does. And then he finally says, and I thank God that I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Guess who it was? Tax collector. He's back there, won't lift his head, beating his breast, a sign, an old ancient way of saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that man went away justified. That's a powerful word, soteriological word. That man went away declared righteous before me. See, he wasn't interested in these. Third point. The bride is captured by the bridegroom. The bride is captured by the bridegroom. Look at verse 18 and following. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They have to tell us about that, right? And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisee fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus says to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? It's like a rhetorical question. You've got to be kidding me, right? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come. There's a tone change here, right? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast in that day. When you study the Bible, particularly and study the legalist of the Bible, it doesn't take you long to realize that every time Jesus or the disciples or later on the apostles teach something or do something that goes against their belief system, their traditions, their rules, they attack. So that's what legalists do. We get in our mind that this is the way it should be. We've interpreted the scriptures to uh, help us look better. And so soon as somebody comes along and says or does or teaches something that different than what our presuppositions have made up in our mind or received from something outside of God's word, we attack. And that's what happens here. And so they have a, a presupposition that, oh, look at us. We're fasting. They're not. We must be the righteous ones and them the unrighteousness. And think about this, here in this beautiful feast that's taking place and great joy is being expressed by at least Matthew, if not his friends who seem to be, many of them seem to be followers of Christ now. And because the Pharisees can't see the glory of Christ, they elevate their legalism in order to make themselves look good. 
And somehow, they even get John's disciples in on this. It must have killed them to do that. But they, they bring him on there in order to elevate this self-righteousness over others. You, know, you can just see him. Well, we fast. John's disciples fast. Yours are partying. I mean, it's looking down the nose, baby. As far as they can at this. And verse 18 is clear. They just come right up. Why do, look at us, why are we doing this and you're not? Later, Jesus takes on this, this view in the Sermon on the Mount again, doesn't he? This false, righteous fasting. He says in chapter 6, verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on gloomy faces, as the hypocrites do. He's right at them here, right here. For they neglect their appearance. That means they didn't look in the mirror in the morning. Because I'll look worse, which will make me look better. <laughs> it's funny how that works, right? They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. You've got, you got to look at something. Somebody looked at you and said, oh, well, that's your reward. Don't break your arm. But you, I love these adversive conjunctions, Jesus says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your faith face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you this jesus teaching is 100 percent opposite of legalism in every time i mean it's just fasting real quick fasting was known in the old testament particularly associated with the day of, of atonement when the nation would fast and and offer uh, goats or sheep for their, for their sins, particularly the sin of the nations. The priest would lay hands on one, slaughter it, lay hands on the other, and lead it away, showing their sins were taken away. There was whole fasting, preparation of the heart to confess sins. It was meant to make men humble at heart. That's the whole goal of it. This is coming out of the Old Testament here. But the Pharisees fasted on an outward, as an outward badge of humbleness, which wasn't true humility. And so here's this feasting and this expression of joy because God has saved one out of a sinful lifestyle and forgiven of his sins, and they're over there doom and gloom. This is what happened. If you ever, and we're all legalists, we're all got a little bit of Pharisee in us, so let's be careful here. But one thing about them is they're pretty sad people because they spend their life trying to figure out how long your skirt is and what it should be. Or in my case, growing up, if your hair was on your ears, you're way out of line in the 70s. And they're mad and, and because there's no joy in them. And I love the contrast here. I just love the contrast. Here's Jesus with the sinners and tax collectors. They're partying, man. Everybody's having a great time. Across the street, because they wouldn't dare come on that side of the street, are a bunch of people pointing fingers. You don't put Jesus in your center of your life and you want to be religious, that's who you're going to be. You'll end up on the other, other side of the street as Jesus. And he's serious about these things. Verse 19, Christ was, going, was not going to let this self-righteous question go unanswered. Notice what he does. And Jesus said to them, the bridegroom's here and the attendants are here. We're not going to fast. I mean, how can that be? So as long as the bridegroom's here, 
We're not going to fast. And so he uses another analogy, another illustration, this one of a wedding to expose the hard hearts of these Pharisees. Fasting is for grief and sorrow and repentance. Weddings are for joy and feasting. And a Jewish wedding lasted about seven days, and the wedding didn't start till guess what? The groom and his attendant showed up. That signaled the start of the wedding. Party was on. Do you think that our weddings, I mean, we have a lot of fun weddings around here, don't we? And they're pretty fun, you know. Um, afterwards, there's, you know, a lot of dancing and fun and music and just, just, it, just praising the Lord for this young couple, getting married or whatever. Uh, you know, we, we put in a couple hours on that. They put seven days in on this. Jesus is relating this. He's relating this to him being the bridegroom. And someone fasting at a wedding would be absurd And so the connection here is Jesus is the long-awaited groom. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And this is the one who can forgive your sins. This is the one who called Matthew out of his life of sin. Can you imagine the joy Matthew has experienced? And here comes the the stick-in-the-mud legalist trying to rob joy of Jesus. Touting their self-righteousness. But despite the Pharisees' negative legalistic comments... Jesus comes back with a sobering statement. Look at verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from you or from them. Actually, very key word, from them. And then they will fast in that day. That word taken away is a little bit of a sobering word. It has kind of a violent, sudden nature to it. Isaiah 53, 8 right in the middle of that great text of Christ's substitutionary death, it says this, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people into whom the stroke was due? So Jesus makes this very sobering statement right in the middle of this and says, look, I am going to be taken away. Right now I'm here, but I am going to be taken away. And when that happens, then we can fast. Then my people will long and wait for me to come. Remember, brothers and sisters, fasting is waiting on God for something. You and I fast privately because we are waiting on God on an answer to prayer, desiring to walk with him in something in our lives, to have victory over and it's something that's private before him. We're waiting for that answer. And, and once he was taken away, they would wait. They would wait actually for three days. He was buried. And they would wait to his resurrection. And then those apostles joyfully served the Lord Jesus Christ with great joy till his death. I'm out of time, but we've got to look at our last point. Self-righteousness is incompatible with the gospel. I'll come back and deal with these two illustrations. But they're amazing illustrations. And and I want to just give you a hint of how to understand them. He speaks of old garment and new patches. He speaks of new wine and old wineskins. And Jesus is giving an illustration of the incompatibility of self-righteousness in the gospel. If you put a new patch on an old set of clothes, the clothes are going to be torn. If you put new wine in an old skin, that skin's going to burst. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is this. Listen. You can't mix my gospel with your traditions. And the minute you try to do it, it's going to come apart. 
You try to put my forgiveness of sin, my grace alone, Christ alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, and try to shove that into some kind of traditions in order to get to me, it will burst. And brothers and sisters, it became so intense as Paul goes into Galatia after he preached the gospel there and many became converts. Judaism came in right behind it. And they said, oh, you can believe in your Jesus, but you must do these things. Paul comes back and says, let that truth be anathem than anybody with it. Because that's put in new wine in old skins and all it's going to do is burst. And that's what he's teaching in this text. And that's why they would burst. That's why Judas burst. That's why people burst all the time because they try to come to Jesus with a little bit of his gospel and a lot of their works. And every time it breaks. And so you and I, brothers and sisters, we lay our lives down and say, without you, Jesus, I got nothing. I had nothing to offer you. Empty hand I come, simply clinging to the cross, the old hymn wrote. That's, that's what Jesus was after. And that's what he found in Matthew and disciples. And that's what he finds in you as a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for a few moments to look into your word of God. It's, it's not enough time. Time just gets away, Lord. We get consumed with you. We, we see your beauty in this text. And yet, right there, opposing you all the way, as we look at this inside look at your ministry, are the self-righteous, whom you say will never gain eternal life. In fact, you will turn to them, all self-righteous, not just these Pharisees, not just Jews, but Gentiles alike, Lord, all those who try to come with their own works, with their own deeds, you will say you never knew them. You only have a relationship with those who came through grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, empty-handed. And so, Lord, as we follow your life throughout the letter of Mark, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be faithful and true followers. We would learn daily to take up the cross and deny ourselves and walk after you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this text. Now, as we prepare for the table, Lord, may these truths be reiterate it to us, Lord, physically, Lord, that we would see through this display, this remembrance of your death, burial, and resurrection, why the gospel must be central. So, Lord, we thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.